0: Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. When COVID hit, the banking industry was caught off guard, needing to provide financial services without physical structures, deliver relief to consumers and small businesses in ways never imagined, accelerate digital transformation and innovation efforts, and perform all of these in a remote work environment. With the pandemic crisis mode mostly in the rearview mirror, financial institutions are determining the next best action, placing their bets for the future. Some are doubling down on investments in data, analytics, advanced technology, and reskilling of workforces. Others are delaying or canceling projects, mostly to improve digital maturity and efficiency. We are joined today by Jim Eckenrode, Managing Director of the Deloitte Center for Financial Services. On the show, Jim discusses how the financial services industry adjusted to the impact of the pandemic and what the outlook for the industry will be in 2021 and beyond. Welcome to the show, Jim. It is clear that 2020 will be a year that nobody will ever forget. Beyond the health-related impacts of the pandemic, the impact of businesses and the economy in general will be felt for years and maybe decades to come. As I look back on both of our projections for the future of banking made one year ago, most of what both of our organizations thought would occur actually did. The difference was that COVID turbocharged the majority of our trends, such as the digitalization of banking, movement to the cloud, the importance of customer experiences and the banking's use of data to drive decisions. Even investments in technology, almost to our surprise, moved to where we thought it would go and somewhat beyond it because of what happened with covid obviously though none of us envisioned the massive change in the way we would work how work would be done in 2020 as you look back to the last year what is your key
1: takeaway from the way the banking industry responded to the covid crisis You know, I think, Jim, and first off, let me thank you for the opportunity to share some of uh, our thoughts as we uh, talk about a very interesting time in the banking industry, for sure. And at the Deloitte Center for Financial Services, you know, we've been looking at this for for quite a long period of time. And, you know, I I think that the one thing that is most notable in my mind is the way that the industry was able to pivot very rapidly to a work-from-home environment, to an economic disruption that is different than the one that we went through in 2008 and was able to really respond in a very agile fashion to a number of different challenges, more so for global institutions, but even for domestic institutions in the United States. The ability to shift to work from home, the ability to continue to support clients through a very tough economic time and to support government programs that were designed to support the economy and workers over the past eight months has really been tremendous. And the industry should feel rightly proud about that. Yeah, it's interesting.
0: We can point out flaws in the process. Of course. When you think of the fact that the, the government came out with a PPP, small business loan program, on a Friday night, and there were institutions that were ready on Monday to offer these loans to the public. In fact, there's a couple that were available on Saturday, and some of them started from scratch. They did not have a digital capability in place but they put the teams together, and, and it wasn't defined by the big organizations. In fact, That's right. it was one of those situations where some small organizations actually, because as you said, pivot, flexibility, agility, they were able to respond almost quicker than the big guys. And you know, when you look at the coming year, your team has just completed some research around the future of banking, what it may look like in 2021. How do you believe the industry will perform financially as well as from a resiliency perspective?
1: That's a great question. We actually did some forecasting earlier this year that was based on some economic scenarios that the Deloitte economics team has produced. And in the first round of our forecasts, you know, it, it painted a fairly troubling picture. Right? Whether you talk about return on equity and efficiency ratios, or whether you talk about loan loss provisions, or loan growth, or revenue growth, you know, it was a tough series of scenarios. Our economists envisioned a couple of different paths that the economy could take, and we based our forecasts on those alternative scenarios. I think the banks did a good job of reserving, particularly in the second quarter. Naturally, As we entered this financial crisis versus the previous one in 2008, the banks were a lot better capitalized, right? Had a lot more liquidity than they did the first time around. So they came into it in a much stronger position. And they were able, as I say, because of fairly strong performance up to that point in time. To reserve a tremendous amount against future loan losses. What we've seen since that initial forecast is that at least up to this point in time, the economy has actually performed a little bit better than we first imagined, but there's still a long way to go. We still forecast cumulative loan losses to be fairly significant through the run of the economic disruption, depending on the scenario, could be as much as $300 billion or more, which is less than in the global financial crisis by a good measure. We also foresee uh, potential weak loan growth and low interest rates combining um, to really squeeze net interest margin and return on equity and therefore uh, hampering uh, efficiency ratios as well. But those things could recover by as early as 2022. You also have the situation where politics plays into this globally, because in every
0: economy, it's a matter of do they shut down, do they not shut down? How long are the packages going to be available? Because we're looking at a a bubble at the end of this year for both um, evictions and foreclosures that could explode if the government doesn't decide to do something before then, which, unfortunately, there's very little incentive to do that until the administration changes. But you end up in a situation that that has a tremendous impact on, on which way the banks are going to have to go and the, the, how they're going to have to use their
1: loss reserves. That's true. There's, there's still some uncertainty in terms of how the election will turn. You know, you've got some runoffs in, in Georgia, for example, that are going to have an influence on, you know, the the general uh, direction of the government. I don't want to speculate yet on what might happen. There's still lots of appointments that need to be made and other uh, initiatives that need to be complicated. But certainly, you know, I think what you're pointing to, Jim, is the the larger issue of, you know, as we head into the winter more fully, we may see some additional challenges emerging for the industry and for the economy at large and so we're continuously updating our forecasts based on those dynamics there's still a long way to go even with the potential for effective vaccines to be rolled out in the short term you know there's still lots of uncertainty but i think up to this point in time what you can say for for relative certainty is that the banks seem to be adequately reserved at this point and that again to this point things have performed better than maybe what was expected back in March and April. So we'll just have to wait and see. So from
0: your research, what was the greatest opportunity that emerged from the pandemic and and what was the greatest risk or threat that was exposed?
1: Well, I think you touched on it earlier. It's the acceleration of digital transformation. You know, everybody keeps talking about this notion of five years worth of digital transformation in five months. You could argue about the relative timeframes, but I think that's generally true. Banks were forced to do a lot in in a, a tremendous hurry, as we talked about before. And I think by and large, they did. a a creditable job. You know, you could point to, you know, things that could have been done better here or there. But I think that the moment called for quick response, let's get something stood up. Let's do what we can to affect the support we need for our customers and for our employees candidly as well. You know, let's go from there. So, the greatest opportunity, I think, before the banking industry is to continue that momentum around digital transformation and bring their customers along on that journey. I think there are some research that suggests that customers have sort of a different opinion about their digital experiences versus their in-person experiences and and you know at Deloitte we like to talk about moments that matter and so particularly when there's a moment that matters whether you're behind on a loan or a check was bounced inadvertently or something like that oftentimes people do want to interact with somebody face to face or at least person to person and i think what our research shows is that banks are increasing their investments in areas that facilitate both full self-service as well as digitally enabled personalized service, whether through video or other means. So there's a real opportunity to, to change that dynamic. I think the greatest risk and threat in this is the same thing, because what we're seeing is that when you enable these new digital capabilities, you have to design in Cybersecurity, along with that, which is why we're seeing again in our survey that cyber is the number one area for increased investment, according to our respondents, in the coming year to 18 months. Because as you build these new capabilities, you've got to design in cyber as part of that, and it has to be done right. I agree that I think the
0: biggest opportunity and the biggest threat has to do with digital. Biggest opportunity was it woke everybody up that they weren't ready for a digital world. I think the biggest threat was. Even in checking off that item on their checklist, they really aren't building for a digital consumer. You talk about those moments. And I think we're moving very quickly from being digital to being able to deliver a really positive digital experience. And I opened up this week an Apple credit card. And if any banker wants to see what the future in customer experience is, open a uh, Apple credit card. You will have it before you even know that you've completed the process. It is uh, five pushes of a a button for them being last four digits of your social security number. And not only do you have the card, but it's placed in your digital wallet at the top of wallet for those people that remember trying to get in the top of wallet. Right. And they ask you then, do you want a physical card delivered to you? And if you do, the way you authorize that card and make it active is actually moving your phone to the card carrier and you never have to make a phone call, punch into your account number or anything else. And you realize that a true digital experience isn't simply being able to do something digitally.
1: The drive and the excitement around digital is really important and is certainly a gaining in speed. But what we like to talk about also is this notion of putting the live in digital and the digital in live. Right. So we did some research a while ago about back then, mobile devices and their potential for use in the financial services industry. And we talked to folks at the MIT Media Lab about that. And the interesting concept there that I'm borrowing, I guess, from these discussions is that increasingly, you're not gonna have a digital experience and a live experience that are separate. They're gonna become melded, right? They're gonna become fused together in such a way that you can use both as you move through the real world. And so the idea that we have separate channels or separate interaction mechanisms, if you will, I think is going to go away and the two will fuse together.
0: You know, our our research for the Digital Banking Report found that financial institutions rank themselves lower in digital transformation maturity, innovation maturity, and data analytic maturity compared to 2019. In light of how well banking reacted to the impact of the pandemic, Why do you think these self-assessments actually dropped as opposed
1: to increased? I think it's interesting because that, again, lines up with some of our research in this uh, outlook that we're going to be releasing next week, where people said that they felt that the pandemic exposed shortcomings in their digital strategies that maybe they didn't realize they had, and that their business was challenged and generally unprepared to meet the moment. Although, as we said before, they did a pretty good job in pivoting in the moment. But- I think that the kind of challenges put before banking leaders as we moved into March and April sort of perhaps highlighted or exacerbated some things that maybe they were able to pay less attention to in a normal environment, but that were really exposed in the events of the last five to eight months. So I think that may be why the self-assessments may have been lower this year, because We've learned some valuable lessons along the way, and hopefully those lessons will take.
0: You know, we were playing catch-up, but didn't realize, as you said, how much of a catch-up we maybe had. So how do banks and credit unions then Successfully meet the needs of what is becoming an emerging digital consumer that goes beyond the typical millennial or X or, or Y consumer. But actually, as you have found out, that even the most elderly of consumers, that's where the biggest jump in digital usage has happened because there was no option and they weren't doing it before. So that's right. How do you think that organizations really have to focus on meet the needs of the emerging digital consumer?
1: Well, I think it gets back to this notion of security and privacy, right? So we've done some research over the years. In over the last year, I would say, in areas like open banking and the degree to which the American public might accept a sort of open banking regime like we're seeing in other uh, regions around the world, which involves necessarily ownership and control and provision of access to financial data, and consumers expressed some concern for that, but they also expressed a great deal of trust, particularly in sharing information with banks. Because for whatever else you might say, banks have done a great job in developing and maintaining a relationship as a custodian and a capability around safeguarding of assets. And identity could be thought of as an asset, right? Yeah. So I think that meeting the needs of the digital consumer involves more pervasive use of alternative data that exists, GPS devices, social media, all of the various forms of data that can be accessed today, doing so responsibly, and communicating to consumers how those data are being used and to what benefit. I think you may be familiar with a piece we did recently on privacy. And what we found, for example, is that consumers who read their bank's privacy statements were much more comfortable in sharing their data than those who didn't. So there's an aspect of transparency that needs to happen as well. Banks need to make sure that their customers understand what data they're collecting, for what reasons, with whom those data will be shared, and what the consumer can expect in terms of benefits for the use of those data. It's actually a value transfer equation. I will share more data with you the more
0: I get back and the less risk I put in place. And so why do consumers not even ever question what... Amazon may know. Well, because they handle it pretty doggone well and the experience is elevated because of the use of data. Netflix is another one when people get recommendations as to what they should watch next. It's almost invisible, but it's one of those things that people get very comfortable with. And, And actually, when you look at banking in general, it's those other organizations' use of data that are going to set the bar again for us as to how well can we do. So, you know. While every organization understands the need for data and AI and machine learning beyond just risk and fraud, how does the industry move forward with their data analyst capabilities with regard to personalization, proactive advice, and the things that really directly and visually and emotionally impact the consumer? Because at least in our research, we have seen that financial institutions have talked to good game, but they haven't
1: invested it. As such, and they and they certainly aren't living that life that way. I, I think a lot of it is foundational, Jim, in terms of developing. I think comprehensive data models, master data management, acquiring the skills necessary to profitably and effectively use those data. Data scientists and others. Uh, there's an intense amount of competition for people with those skill sets, whether you're talking about in the product marketing space or in the cyber risk management space or other spaces, bringing the right talent on board is, is going to be really important as well. And, you know, I think also taking advantage of platforms that have been around for a long time that really do supercharge the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning that is cloud as a platform for enabling uh, those kinds of capabilities.
0: We skirted around the issue you mentioned about the um, investment in cybersecurity. Yep. I know your research has really looked at the way organizations are gonna be changing their technology budgets over the next year. What were some of your other findings besides that cybersecurity getting the, the top billing this year? How else are organizations looking at changing their technology budgets? Well,
1: you know, at the top line, Jim, it's interesting. We asked the bankers what actions they wanted to take to ensure financial and operational stability and resilience. And a whole host of different responses, but I'd like to focus in on three that have to do with technology specifically. First, we asked them, are you going to delay or cancel longer-term technology projects? Second, are you going to invest in technology to drive efficiency? Third, are you going to invest in innovation? And about two thirds of the respondents picked one of those paths, okay? And then the rest picked a combination. So perhaps repositioning, canceling some projects, investing in others. But I think it's interesting, the the sort of dichotomy or trichotomy, I guess, between those three paths in the sense of do we really have a a focus on innovation going forward do we really want to focus on cost containment or do we want to just you know sort of circle the wagons a little bit and ride it out in terms of overall investment in technology certainly as we mentioned Cyber was at the top of the list, along with cloud as sort of the top grouping. From there, there's sort of a a bundle of data analytics and AI, along with investments in channels, and interestingly enough, blockchain. And then RPA sort of was the last in terms of priority list, but still there, a significant percentage were looking at increases in spending. As you look at the banking industry, particularly investing, as I said before, in more personalized digital interactions, even the use of for example, video ATMs for live interactions, right? So how do we support customers' needs through digitally enhanced personalized interactions is really an an area of tremendous focus. Organizations ask me, you know, should we be
0: investing in video tellers, machines in the branches because of COVID? I immediately say, guys, unless you got your digital shop in order, investing in any technology in the branch it's probably a secondary priority only because you're getting a lot more visits on your digital platform and you know you don't want to have your account opening process take 10 minutes but you have a great video teller that gets
1: used four times during the day well it's interesting you mentioned that jim because when we asked about where talent increases are going to be seen, where you're going to hire more people. Call center agents was number one.
0: And that's good because that's the humanization that's right. of digital experiences. You know, so let's switch a little bit. Let's pivot as the word for 2020 has pretty much been played out. What about the payments front? Uh what do you see as the biggest changes in the near term in is a cashless society even possible in the foreseeable future?
1: I don't know if a cashless society will ever emerge. There are a variety of different reasons why cash is a useful means of exchange. But certainly, like with everything else, we're seeing an acceleration in digital payments. You know, there's this notion with our colleagues in the, in the consumer business of BOPIS, right? Buy online, pick up in store. Those sorts of trends, particularly around non-discretionary purchases like groceries as opposed to discretionary is certainly something that can be supported. And I think the banks are doing a good job in supporting that, even down to the small business owner. Lots of initiatives happening there to support the smaller end of the commercial scale with digital payments and digital acceptance, right? Certainly, we're seeing also personalization in things like default payment choice. You mentioned first card out of wallet. Well, there's the first card out of electronic wallet too. A choice as to which card you lodge on the various sites where you make repeated payments. You know, enabling that to happen as well, and then modernizing the payments infrastructure. You look at FedNow as an example of real-time payments, and you know certainly there are other examples of that around the world. But the U.S. government and the Federal Reserve Bank is now moving in that direction as well. And then finally, you know, with respect to the current situation, the financial crisis. Looking for ways to bring more people into the tent, more financial inclusion around payments for gig workers and for others, I think is going to be a trend as well.
0: Still on the payments front, with the recent announcement of a completely re-engineered Google Pay platform and the partnership between Google and several traditional financial institutions, How do you see the evolution of big tech and fintech organizations in
1: 2021 and beyond? That's a good question. And let me talk about fintechs first, because we've been following that marketplace for several years now. What we're seeing, at least the evidence that we have, is that the number of new fintech startups has almost dropped to zero compared to the pace from, let's say, 2013 to 2017. What we're seeing is is a flight of capital and investment, which is still fairly robust, to establish business models. We've seen an increase in MA and acquisition of fintechs. And I think a, a relatively mutually beneficial partnership environment between banks and fintechs. They both have found ways to benefit from that without killing each other, so to speak, right? Yeah. So I think that they will have a definite role to play in terms of helping banks along with digital transformation there are no shortage of partnerships of banks and fintechs doing that in terms of the big techs i think there's also opportunity for collaboration as well you know when we look out beyond the next year or so to the remainder of the decade we see the potential evolution of new business models and the emergence of platforms that may have a variety of different participants banks big techs retailers fintechs and others to collaborate on the design and delivery of financial products to consumers and businesses. And banks are absolutely going to have a role to play there. And in fact, we would think has the opportunity to play a leading role in the establishment of these kinds of platforms.
0: So how comfortable are you with traditional financial institutions giving up what I'm going to call their user experience front door to a Google or to an Apple or to somebody else, and basically be in the behind-the-scenes rails. It may depend on the organization, but is that a concern? I don't know that
1: that's necessarily the outcome that you could anticipate. There are business model extensions that allow banks to expand and acquire new customer sets. For example, you know whether it's uh, partnering on card issuance or partnering on corporate cash management systems, right? um white labeling of capabilities is an opportunity to expand and extend your business model and reach new customer sets right and we've seen that in the fintech space as well partnering with fintechs in some cases allows a large bank to access a new customer set as well that they might not have otherwise been able to service so i don't know that it's necessarily the case that banks are going to give up the customer interface i think they've got some challenges and some need to innovate in that space but i also think based on my previous commentary, consumers trust banks. There's a big difference between managing your financial life and managing the purchase of a video or a new pair of shoes or something like that. It's a, it's a different kind of equation. And so I think that financial institutions will still have a major role to play. Most organizations are still in a remote work environment. Some banks
0: have already decided to allow customer care agents to work from home indefinitely, How do you
1: see the future of work in banking shaking out? Well, you know, we talk a lot about hybrid roles, for example, in the future of work. So roles that either combine capabilities together or that are augmented by artificial intelligence and machine learning. So turning transaction-oriented workers into knowledge-based workers, right? And we talk about that even in the customer uh, service context. Instead of processing transactions, they're delivering advice, using the kinds of technologies that are increasingly being deployed uh, all the way out to the front lines. So the future of work is certainly about those kinds of augmented roles. So that's kind of who does the work and what work is being done. There's also the where component to it, right? Not all of our respondents foresaw a reduction in the number of branches as necessarily part of their future. So those face-to-face opportunities are still going to exist, and we're still going to need people to staff those roles. They may have a different skill set.
0: So how do you think the industry will respond to the pressure to reskill or upskill their current force, or will they simply outsource for the digital future?
1: You know, it's interesting because outsourcing is an area that was identified in our survey as being an area of increased interest as compared to proprietary development or purchase of, of technology. So certainly that is gaining steam. In terms of skill sets, you know, there are a number of different dimensions to that, not the least of which is that a lot of folks are looking to extend their careers, right? Baby boomers like myself are not necessarily thinking about retirement at age 65. They may want to do something different. They may want to learn new skills. They may want to stay in the business. And there's a lot of benefit To the institution because of the institutional knowledge, because of the relationships that exist that older workers have. And, you know, we're looking at things like putting together older and younger workers for cross training, right? Mutually beneficial. Maybe the older workers can learn some things about newer technology, for example, and the younger workers can learn some things about how the business is run, building relationships and all of that. So there's a symbiotic aspect to that as well. So yeah, reskilling and upskilling is certainly part of that. And you know, there's another angle to this, I think, in terms of financial inclusion. A number of banks have started apprenticeship programs. For individuals that may not be college material or may not have college degrees but may want to get into the industry and so that's a new source of talent for the future that you know is an evidence of the fact that banks are thinking differently about the kind of skills not only that they need but where they can get those skills and do they have to become full-time workers that come into
0: the office all these dynamics really came out of the pandemic yes right given your recent research into the future of banking What do you think is going to be keeping bankers up at
1: night in 2021? Well, that's a good question. And I guess I look at it, Jim, as as there are two sides to the coin. The typical, I think, intent of the up at night question is, I can't sleep because I'm worried about, right? And certainly there are things that will continue to uh, be concerns or be priorities, let's put it that way, for bankers, cybersecurity, the need to evolve away from legacy technology, Uh, standardized products that aren't really differentiated in the marketplace and other aspects like that, that, you know, you and I both know we've been talking about for a long, long time. But I think there's also the up at night with excitement. The way we look at it is that the industry has a real opportunity to contribute more to society in the coming years. So, whereas... The industry was identified as sort of at the epicenter of the financial crisis of 2008. In this particular crisis, banks have played more of a role in supporting society. And you're seeing that evidenced in a number of different actions that bank leaders are taking, whether it's around you know, responding to government programs to support the economy, announcements around sustainability and climate change, diversity and inclusion, We think that the industry has a real opportunity as essential providers of capital and liquidity to all businesses to really support the transformation of the economy and society as we come out of this pandemic in a very, very positive way. And so what I would say is that bankers may be staying up at night concerned about some of the things that I mentioned, but they should also be up at night being really excited about the opportunities before them as we come out of this. I think they have a real significant role to play in a positive sense. And even on a personal level, I think that
0: you have executives now that can really rethink if they're in the 40s, been in legacy banking for 20, 25 years, and they're in a senior management position, really say, I have the ability now with everything that's going on to change this organization and to change myself and my legacy thinking and the way things have always been done. And I agree with you. I I think, yeah, there's a whole lot going wrong. But you know, if you look back, and I made the comment this morning in a call that nobody would have thought if you look from March to this period that we'd be where we are in a negative way. On the other hand, if you look back and you go, see, did I waste time and not take advantage of this new environment to really double down on personal learning, to double down on what's possible, to double down on, on seeing how other industries are responding to the same challenges, Because I think what we see is there are going to be fallout of organizations that don't change and can't exist in the new world. But there's going to be other organizations that look at banking in a completely different way, as you mentioned, the possibility of of a local community bank reinvesting in the community in different ways that never been thought of before, but enough that the local community says, you know what, they may not have the best digital tools, but I want to stick with them. And then you got the big organizations that truly have the technology and the the funds to to deploy across the marketplace. You're going to see some really exciting things, everything from voice banking to the uses you mentioned to blockchain and maybe even Bitcoin. There's an open pasture out there, and I, I think before we get on the call, one of the things you said, Jim, was that you know it's kind of interesting as researchers. Sometimes you go year to year and you see just a a very marginal change and adjustment, almost like banks do their strategic plan. Let's take last year's and just adjust it. Well, that's not possible in this new world. You know, those organizations that simply take last year's plan and adjust it marginally are not going to be the successful ones. But those that say, you know, let's take a blank sheet of paper, let's do things differently. Because the good news is, more than ever before, The ability for partnerships in the marketplace with other or solution providers that can do what you can't do is enormous. And organizations know how to work with legacy systems, different configurations, anything that you can throw at them, they've already seen it and they can help you. And at a cost that makes it so organizations of every size can excel. So I think- that's a really nice, positive way to end the conversation, and and Jim, I want to thank you very much. Your research is exceptional. We reference it quite frequently. Your team uh, is kind enough to feed us some information. In fact, I, I'm coming out with an article tomorrow about gender inequity in the financial marketplace, which you just did a nice little research uh, study on, and uh, we're going to reference it. And we had a podcast um, this past week around the gender inequity and how we have to address that. But I want to thank you personally for your help and and for giving us a little peek into what 2021 can be. Well, thank you, Jim.
1: I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: What a great discussion with Jim Eckenrode from Deloitte around the future of banking. It's our first podcast on that subject with regard to 2021. But I think what really comes out of it is that it's really gonna be an extension of what we had to do in a post-pandemic world, right? When the pandemic started. And I think the opportunity is great. And it was, it was really exciting to hear the end of the interview end on a really up note, something that people that listen to my podcast often know that I really believe that pandemic has provided more opportunity than threat um certainly on a non health related basis but i think that it, it is a call to action for all organizations to really say let's achieve what's possible and let's do things differently thanks for listening to banking transformed rated as a top 5 banking podcast i genuinely appreciate the support you have provided since we started this endeavor if you enjoy what you or we are doing please be sure to subscribe to banking transformed on your favorite podcast app in addition Please take 30 to 45 seconds to show some love in the form of a review. It means the world to me. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research we're doing on digital transformation, customer experience and the use of data, the future of in banking, retail banking innovation, and the changing dynamics of financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak and our audio engineer, Sean Ruhl-Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Rooz. Until next time, continue to expand your horizon and follow your passion.